The three verses that Pastor John is going to be opening up to us today are found in Romans chapter 5. We'll start reading with verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Father, I ask for your help, please, in the unfolding of these glorious words, these impossible words, these shocking words. There is no human being who can carry this text through without omnipotent grace. So come, Holy Spirit, and be at work opening hearts and minds to see the gospel, to see grace, to see truth and reality, so that we are changed into this kind of people who can exult in trouble. I commit my effort and this service now in its remaining part to you for your sustaining grace and power and saving work. Through Christ I pray, amen. When a person becomes a Christian, becomes a child of God, what happens? What's the transaction that takes place in that moment? Well, first, there is the hearing of the gospel. You can hear it from a radio, you can hear it from a sermon preached, you can read it in a tract, you can read it in the Bible. You can hear Billy Graham, you can hear it on television, you can hear it in conversation over lunch from a person who loves you enough to witness to you, but you got to hear, you got to know the gospel of Christ, which essentially is God sent His Son into the world to live a flawless life, die for sins, rise triumphant over death and sin and hell and judgment for all those who will believe in Him. That's the first thing that has to happen. There has to be a hearing of news. The second thing that happens in that moment is that the Holy Spirit, who loves the Word of God, who loves the news, who loves the Christ of the Gospel, moves on the heart to quicken it and open it to see the trustworthiness of Christ in the Gospel and that this Jesus and His Father are more to be desired than any earthly treasure. So there's this spiritual work that happens that changes us so that we recognize the Christ of the Gospel as trustworthy and desirable. The third thing that happens, and I don't think it's really separable like a third thing, it is this second thing in completion, call it faith, but it is the heart's 
movement or leaning or embracing of that Christ and of that treasure for its trustworthiness and for all that God has been, is now, and promises to be for us in Him. We call that faith. And when that happens, and all of that happens just like that, becoming a Christian in its preparation can be a while, in its unfolding can be a while, but in its event is instantaneous. You're never half a child of God. You're never half way out of the womb. You're either born or not born in the Christian scheme of things. Now, when that happens, you are justified. That's what we've been talking about now for months. You are justified. You see it in verse 1. We didn't read yet. But verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, which means that this spirit that quickened us, brought us into a believing frame that reached out to Jesus, is now uniting us to this Jesus. And in uniting us to Jesus, his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. Our sins, which we performed, are laid on Him, Isaiah 53, 6 says. And His righteousness, which He performed, is laid on us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He died our death, we get His life and righteousness. The sins that He didn't perform are put on Him, and the righteousness that He performed that I didn't perform is given to me and imputed to me. And we call it being set right or being justified by faith alone. That happens in that moment. You are made right with God in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's what we've been trying to unfold now for these many months. This is glorious gospel news for sinners. Believe me. And that's the only kind of people there are in this room. You know that. There are only sinners here who need salvation. And the news to you this morning is that God sent Christ to die your death, live your life. And by faith, you get his righteousness. He takes your sins and the inheritance becomes yours as a child of God forever. Glory. And on that, we saw last week, is based three things. Number one, we have peace with God. Enjoy it. Number two, we enter into grace in which we stand. Verse two, grace is power, I argued last week. And you stand in it, and it works in you. It doesn't just forgive your sins. It doesn't just treat you with leniency. Grace moves on you with power. We'll see that again in just a minute. And thirdly, therefore, you exult in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, or verse 2, the end of verse 2. So what you see now in verses 1 and 2 from last week is that justification by faith is not an end in itself. It is meant to remove every obstacle out of the way so the end of verse 2 can come true for you. Namely, exulting in the hope of the glory of God. Who cares about being made right with God if we don't get God? So many people think about 
their sins being forgiven and their guilt being taken away and they're escaping hell and good, now I'll just go out and do what I've always done. Love the same stuff, want the same stuff, do the same stuff. What in the world is the point of that? How does God get any glory from that? God gets glory when He's our treasure, when He's our goal. Justification gets every barrier out of the way and brings us home to our Father. And the banquet table of his love, which increases in delectability forever and ever and ever as we experience it. Now, between justification by faith in the twinkling of an eye at conversion and the inheritance of that glory, something else has to be talked about and experienced. And it is tribulation. That's a big fancy word. Sufferings, troubles, difficulties, problems. And that's what this text that Irv just read is all about. How are we to understand trouble in the Christian life? How are we to understand suffering and tribulation And how are we to respond to it? And Paul answers, we are to understand it as gracious, God-designed help for our faith and hope. And we are to exult in it. Now, that I do not say lightly. All the more... Not in view of this brochure that's in your worship folder, right? This is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And if you just briefly glimpse at this, like the last paragraph on the front page, you read this. Christians who aren't killed are often subjected to brutal torture and brainwashing, attempts to force them to recant their faith, In some parts of the world, Christian women are brutally raped to break their allegiance to Christ, while children are sold into slavery for as little as $15, for example, today in Sudan. Thousands more languish year after year in prisons or labor camps. You can't read that and then look at these pictures and read these stories in this brochure without saying verse 3 very carefully. This is no trifle here. We're not talking about the stubbing of toes, the breaking of your brakes in your car, only or mainly. We're talking about major trials, pain, suffering. Let's read verse 3. Not only this... That is, not only do exult in the hope of the glory of God, but we also exult, same word, exult, boast, rejoice, in our tribulations. Now, when Paul says that, he is not speaking as a spectator. Paul suffered long and hard and knew what he was talking about. 
Let me read you one statement of his own experience from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, just to show you that he was not speaking what he did not practice. He said there, Christ has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast. It's the same word as Romans 5, 3. I will exult about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So we are to exult with Paul in his tribulations, in his sufferings. Now ask this. When it says weaknesses there in verse 9, and it says tribulations in Romans 5, 3, what's included in your life? What does that include? Well, I'll read verse 10 of 2 Corinthians to show you how broad it is for Paul. He says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, Difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Now that's very broad. In fact, I would argue, therefore, that when it says, Exult in your tribulations in Romans 5 3, boast in them, exult in them, it means the entire range of trouble in life that you experience. As a Christian, any, any test that comes into your life that makes your life harder and therefore can cause you to doubt the goodness or the power or the wisdom of God is a tribulation over which this verse says you should exult. Let's be specific. It could be tribulations in regarding the loss of your health at any measure, from a sore throat to cancer. It could be the tribulations from broken or strained relationships that cause you much anguish. It could be tribulations from vocational hardships or disappointments at work. It could be tribulations with regard to accidents or natural disasters, say, that swept away some irreplaceable heirloom or journal or ring. It could be tribulations that relate to verbal or physical assault on your life or your reputation. It could be everyday inconveniences like traffic jams or long waits at the doctor's office or uh, plumbing that goes out. It could be any of these things because anything that tends to make you angry or complaining or murmuring or bitter or resentful or disappointed and thus call the goodness, power or wisdom of God into question is something that's being dealt with here in this verse called tribulations. And I want to make very clear as we move into this that you know this is normal Christianity. 
If you don't have troubles, something is wrong with you. You're not living the way you should if you don't have trouble in life. Paul said to every single church after he finished the first missionary journey, Acts 14.22, he came back visiting every one of them to establish them as young disciples. And he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. This is normal. We must enter through tribulations. There is no other road than the narrow road that leads to life with many tribulations. In fact, the word narrow in Matthew 7 is the verb form of flipsis, which is the word tribulation in Romans 5.3. So it's a tribulation strewn road that leads to heaven. And it's the only road that leads to heaven. And therefore, it is normal for Christians to experience tribulation and they get worse when you become a Christian. Not better. The kind may change, but the tribulations will very likely increase not decrease when you become a child of God. Now, I want you to be sure you have that in your mind as you face the rest of your life and as you approach this text. And, of course, the question that pommels us is, how is this in any way possible for us? I mean, how did you do this week? Something broke. Some awful word was spoken to you some terrible disappointment, some scary sickness. How did you do this week? Were you free from complaining, free from resentment, free from disappointment, free from bitterness? Did you entrust yourself to God and rejoice in Him knowing, knowing something that we're going to talk about in a minute? This is not something you can do. You cannot do this. This is not resident in human nature. To rejoice in tribulation is not humanly possible. It is grace. Now, why do I say that? Before I even begin to unpack verses 3 to 5. I say it because of what I remember from verse 2. I argued last week that... We have access into this grace in which we stand, and we will stand, it says in chapter 14, verse 5. We will stand. God is able to make His children stand. We will stand, but we will not stand apart from grace. Grace will enable us to stand. So the key to rejoicing when things go very badly in your life is grace. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. The most beautiful people in the New Testament that I know of, aside from Jesus Christ, my Lord, are the Macedonians described in 2 Corinthians 8. Nobody is more beautiful to behold than the Macedonians. Listen to this. Now, you know who they are. They're they're the Philippians. Macedonia is the northern part of Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, it's that northern section of Greece. Paul is writing to the people who live in the southern part of Greece, in Corinth, 
and he's using the people up north as examples of how he wants the people to be down south. And here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. There's the thing to underline. The grace of God. We want to make known to you the grace of God. And now he describes the effect of it. Which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal, that's the same word for test in in the Romans 5, 3, or a related word, a great ordeal of affliction, there's the word, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in a wealth of liberality. Now this is not a command, this is a story about real people in whom the grace of God did something unthinkable. Two things characterize these people. Extreme affliction and deep poverty. Becoming Christians didn't take away their poverty and it added to their affliction. And the effect of grace is, let's make sure we read it so you know it's God's word and not mine. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in a wealth of liberality. That is possible because it has happened. And I want to be that way, way more than I am. And I'll bet you do too. So grace was shown in Macedonia. It didn't take away poverty. It increased afflictions. And it resulted in abundant Joy, which yielded love, liberality. And that's the kind of church we want to be. We are going to suffer. And we're going to be with each other in our small groups when we suffer. And we're going to minister words of support and healing and comfort and sustaining grace. And the Spirit of God is going to come with grace into our suffering. We will come through the suffering with joy. We will count it a blessing from God. And we will have resources not to be self-absorbed, but liberal with our life and our time and our energy and our money, though it is going very bad for us. And that will cause the world to wonder. Not when everything goes well. The world is not impressed with Christians when everything goes well and it looks like we're feeding on the same supports they feed on. What testimony is that? Which is one of the reasons I abominate the health and wealth gospel. Now, here's a key. Grace does not produce this miracle of exulting in tribulation Magically. Wave a wand. Even pray a prayer. It happens. It doesn't do it magically. Grace does it through the truth. 
You will know the truth, Jesus said in John 8, 32, and the truth will make you free from complaining and bitterness and disappointment and self-absorption. Well, which is it then? Is it the truth or is it grace? And the answer is yes. It is the truth of God revealed to the mind with grace opening the heart to embrace the truth and exult in it in the midst of tribulation. Now, here's the key question then. What truth does Paul teach that grace uses to create people who exult in tribulation? And that's what this text is about. Let's just take it. There are four of them. Boom, 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 boom. I'll just point them out to you. They're very simple. You could preach the rest of this sermon, I think, yourself. So let's do it. Romans 5, 3. First truth. Tribulation brings about perseverance. You need to know that. That's a truth. We see that when he says, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations knowing. You hear that word? Don't miss that word. Knowing something, knowing something, knowing the truth creates joy. Joy doesn't come out of nowhere. The Holy Spirit is not a genie. He works quietly, silently, in the heart, humbly, opening the heart to truth, which is why I believe in preaching. With all my might, I believe in preaching. Because the Holy Spirit does not work in your life apart from truth. He works on truth, under truth, around truth, over truth, applying truth, opening hearts to truth. And it's truth that is glorious and changes you into one who exalts in tribulation. So he says, knowing something here. Now, what do we need to know? And there are four things. Number one, tribulation brings about perseverance. Well, that's simple. You can see that. Here comes trouble. Your faith meets the trouble. Your faith starts to bend. It looks up to God. It cries out, oh God, help me. Sustain me. Help me to trust you that you'll turn this tribulation somehow for my good. And you move through it. And in moving through it, your faith perseveres. It endures. And it becomes stronger. Stronger. How is it stronger? It's stronger the way metal is stronger when it is put through the fire. I read a little bit in my encyclopedia yesterday about steel, just so I could not make mistakes in this illustration, about the way steel is tempered. I, I, I had this word temper in my mind that steel is tempered, but I didn't know how that works. And it, it's basically a heating and cooling process of certain three elements. And if you heat it to about 800 plus degrees centigrade and then you cool it a certain way, it's the heating and the cooling that make it maximally strong. If you do it wrong, it can be brittle or it can be soft. But when you do it right, it gets strong and you can build buildings out of it and bridges out of it and it can support massive weight. And that's what the fire of tribulation is to us. We persevere through the fire and it gets stronger. That's the first thing. That's the first truth. Here's the second truth. Perseverance brings about proven character. Let's read it. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, this enduring through the fire, brings about proven character. Now the word to focus on there is proven. Provenness. 
would be an awkward but good translation. And the idea is, when this happens, and the gold, to change the metaphor, or the steel comes through, and it didn't break, and it's stronger, you say, that's real, that's real, that's authentic. That's authentic steel. That's authentic gold. It's been refined. It's been tempered. And so it is proven, authentic, genuine. So perseverance, surviving the pain, proves the, the metal is real. It's genuine. It's authentic. Now that's truth number two that you need to know. Here's truth number three. Provenness or proven character brings about hope. Let's read that. Verse 3 again. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about this sense of being approved or shown authentic or real or genuine. And this proven, authentic, real, genuine faith brings about hope. Now, how does that work? I don't think that's complicated, is it? What you have to think, though, is this. One of the great obstacles to hoping in the inheritance of the glory of God, verse 2, one of the obstacles to hope is the fear that you might be a fake Christian. A hypocrite. You just learned it all from your parents, that's all. You're just in it for the money. You like to preach. You just, you like to come to church because the music is nice or there are friends here. And the fear arises from time to time. My God, I might be fake. I might be a hypocrite. I, I may be just going through motions here. And that's a terrifying thought. The terrifying thought that we might not be real. And therefore lost. And this text says, God designs fire for the sake of your genuineness, which when it proves itself in the fire, gives you hope that you're not fake. Fire is to help you not be fake and to know it. That's the, that's the argument here. Tribulation yields perseverance. Perseverance yields a sense of, I made it through. My faith made it through. I didn't break. I'm real. And therefore, hope abounds. I'm a child of God. He's made me a child of God. Grace has sustained me. My faith is real. And that's very precious. That's very precious. One last truth. What about this other threat to assurance? There's another threat to assurance. God wants everybody in this room to have assurance this morning. The confidence that you're a child of God. That you're going to inherit glory. You're going to escape hell. Your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to have everlasting joy in His presence. He wants you not to be all worked up with doubt about that. He wants you to be bold and confident and assured. 
One obstacle to that assurance is the fear that you might be a hypocrite and fake, and he designs fire for that. The other obstacle is, what if you get to the end and you weathered the fire, the metal has been proven, and God proves false. He didn't really love me after all. Or maybe he doesn't even exist. Where are you going to get the solution to that doubt and fear and lack of assurance? And that's what verse 5 is about. So I would say the fourth truth is something like this. The hope that arises from a proven faith, an authentic faith, will not disappoint us because God gives us the experience of His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I'll read it to you. Verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. It's not ever going to disappoint. Christian hope is never going to disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, my time is up. And I knew my time would be up here. So, at this point in my preparations, I thought, instead of only doing six to eight in two weeks after Thanksgiving Sunday, I'm going to linger on verse five. Verses six to eight give the objective ground of this hope. But verse 5 is something we really need to struggle with as a church here. Because here's the answer to the question of doubt and lack of assurance. It's not an argument. You see that? Verse 5 is not an argument. It's an experience. Paul believes in arguments. He believes in apologetics. He uses arguments. I believe in arguments. They can take you so far. They can help you. They can remove some obstacles. But at the end of the day, the heart can always say, but how do I know? doesn't matter what arguments you use. The heart can always say, I don't know. So what's his answer? His answer is... An experience of the love of God poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. We need to know what that is, don't we? I mean, that's just too big to pass over in two minutes in closing. Way too big. We got to talk about this. We got to figure this out. We got to, in the next two weeks, I just invite you, would you pray for that? Now, it says, has been poured out. If you're a Christian, you have at least in seed form that experience. You do. You do. But I don't think it's an all or nothing experience and can be much greater than it is for most of us. And you should pray in the next two weeks that God the Holy Spirit would do verse 5. Even if you don't know what it is, ask Him to do it. Say, do verse 5. Do verse 5 on me.
That's the way I pray. I have many verses I puzzle over. And I just say, this is your word. Do this verse to me. And maybe I'll discover the meaning as you do it to me. And that's all right. So, there are two obstacles to assurance. And God wants you to have assurance. One is that you might be fake. And the other is that God might be fake. The first one, he designs fire to burn away all the inauthenticity of your faith and leave it like steel. And the other is the love of God poured out lavishly into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Whatever that is, we want it. Let's stand together. Lord, would you come now? I know that there are people in the room here, probably many, who hear this verse 5 and tremble that they've never tasted it. And some know they've tasted it and they want so much more than a taste. But this experience of pouring, pouring, pouring from the Holy Spirit. So that the love of God is real to us. And not just an inference drawn from argument. But a work in our hearts. So come and bestow that spiritual work I ask upon this congregation. Now and in the weeks to come. Because to have the assurance of faith is blessed beyond all measure. The benediction I would leave with you is very simple. May the Lord, the Holy Spirit, pour out the love of God into your hearts in the fullest measure possible for a justified sinner. And everybody said, Amen. I'll be here, pray with you, but you're dismissed.